Well, I did tell Carol that I was going to speak about my spiritual journey, but I will tell you at the end, I don't think that's what I'm really going to do. Um, I would love to spend 30 minutes telling you about our nine plus one grandchildren. The oldest grandson is Mary. That's where I count the plus one. Of those 10, three are out of college with real jobs. In our family, we define real jobs by the availability of health insurance. <laughs> there are three in college, two in high school, one in middle and one elementary, and they're wonderful. But I suspect that is not what you came to hear about. I'm going to share my spiritual journey as I understand it. And I admit that I don't have complete self-knowledge. And please hear this, I do not present this as the right way to think about any particular issue. I think that would be presumptuous and arrogant. I share this only as the experiences and influences that have impacted me. Some of these you may relate to and some you may not. From a church community perspective, I was the product of a mixed marriage. My mother was as Church of Christ as you can be. The great niece of David Lipscomb, two brothers-in-laws that were the preachers, etc. My father was Baptist. Karen, there's one here and here and there. My father was Baptist, lived next door to the church, took care of the cemetery, devout. And though he attended church services with our family at the Church of Christ three times a week, and he had been baptized by immersion, he was still considered lost by most members of the congregation where we attended. My mother's family pressured her to live, as scripture said, so righteously that my father would come to faith. As a young child, I was fairly oblivious to the tension in our family, though I do have a sad memory of my mother tearing up as a sweet church lady leaned across the aisle after one of those repent or go to hell sermons and begged my father to believe. But I think these circumstances led to a practice in my family that differed from that of most of my church friends. You know, back then it was pot roast, pot roast every Sunday lunch, or at least most of the time. And at our family, we would dis at our table, we would discuss the sermon. I never remember a dis disparaging mark about the preacher. But we did sometimes differ with his interpretation of scripture, with assumptions that he made or conclusions that he came to. I did not grow up feeling compelled to agree with all that was presented from the pulpit. And I grew up exposed to the idea that not all agreed on every issue. Back then, many women wore hats at church, not the really pretty hats like Rebecca wears, but they wore hats. <laughs> at least on Sunday morning, but a few, mostly older women, also wore hats on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. I understood that they thought a head covering was commanded of women. I don't remember any pressure from those who wore hats to convince those who did not wear hats to do so, nor vice versa. The, I knew the verses about women wearing pearls and braided hair, but these were almost universally regarded as cultural, and frankly, that made sense to me. Related to all this was how my family handled the fact that we did not believe exactly all that my very conservative Church of Christ grandmother believed. 
she didn't think you should play with spot cards. Do you even know what spot, the younger ones, if you won't know what spot cards are, they're playing cards. And the reason you weren't supposed to play with them was because they were used in poker and people gambled on poker. So you could play Rook all day, but please do not play Canasta, okay? <laughs> uh, she also didn't approve of dancing. So my mother asked that my brother and I not play with the offending cards when my grandmother was visiting, and we didn't mention that we had gone to the school square dances. I didn't see this as deceptive. If asked, all of us would have told my grandmother the truth. But I saw it as respectful of her not to do what would be offensive right in front of her. I do recognize that my mother was probably avoiding a talking to. But. Sometimes in early high school, I read a book. It was a little, I think I still had a little thin book called Why I'm a Member of the Church of Christ. Did you read that? <laughs> Each chapter had a topic that proved that we were the right church. We had the right name. We had the right practices, the right beliefs. There were pages of proof text. And I found the book reassuring. It was sort of a checklist. You do all this, you got it right, that's it. Um, but as I got a little older, my understanding became a little less clear. I had in mind that there was a specific, I mean, I knew we didn't use instrumental music and in, instruments in worship, but I thought there was a verse that said not to do that. And when I finally, I was shocked to realize that the verse that we use to prohibit that doesn't mention instruments at all, not for or against. And so that neat kind of reassuring proof text approach began to be a little flawed to me. But my church of origin was a community that cared deeply for each other. It held a high view of scripture. It was committed to moral character. I'm grateful for the influence of that early church. I was a rather quiet and shy child. I enjoyed school and always knew I would go to college. I never planned to have a career. I anticipated marrying and being a stay-at-home mom as my mother had been. My parents had a very traditional marriage. My father made all major decisions, which suited my mother wonderfully. She hated to make decisions. My father was not a dictator. I know that he consulted my mother on her preferences, and he was kind and considerate of all of us, but he was clearly the leader in the family. That's going to be important to me later on. So I go to college at ACU in Lipscomb and then to grad school at Peabody. ACU was a wonderful experience for me. I met people from new and different places. One of my best friends was an Army brat who had spent her senior year in England. Uh, it, it, it opened up the world to me a little bit. Abilene has a different way of doing Bible. You take fewer hours, but the courses are frankly more rigorous. And I took the Gospel of John under Neil Lightfoot. Some of you may have read some of his writings. I had to study. One of the requirements of the course that we had to read the entire Gospel in one sitting. You just had to sign something that you had done that. Lightfoot felt strongly about our getting the big picture from the Gospel. He highlighted themes and patterns throughout the book. He never discussed an isolated verse. And that was a new concept in Bible study for me. I graduated, got a job, married Fletcher. 
Yes, there were some other boyfriends and even engagements in the meanwhile, but that's more story than we have time for. <laughs> At almost 30, Fletcher was still single, no thanks to my dear friend, Sandra Collins and Nan Smith. <laughs> Fletcher and the Collins and the Smiths had all been in Durham for them to be in graduate school. And Sandra and Nan uh, had tried hard to matchmake Fletcher with a lovely single woman in the church there. Fortunately, he had not bought into their plans. <laughs> and in a bit of serendipity, that young woman married someone else, stayed in Durham, and decades later was the Sunday school teacher for our three-year-old granddaughter. Is that not sweet? Um, Fletcher and I, well, and I will tell this, maybe especially since she's not here. Um, I did not meet Sandy until the weekend of our wedding, and she certainly didn't indicate it at the time, but I found out later she found, she was rather disappointed with Fletcher's choice and thought I, and thought I was rather fluffy. <laughs> Fletcher and I married in 1968, and I moved to Florida where he was teaching. I worked as a school psychologist several years until our first child arrived. I found my work interesting and satisfying. While I was in the hospital after the delivery of our daughter, Perry, the nurse noticed from my records that I had a degree in psychology. Her husband was head of the psych department of the local university, and he needed an adjunct teacher for the next year. So my stay-at-home mom dreamed morphed into teaching two hours a day. It was perfect. I was home almost all the time. Often the baby was asleep with a nap while I was gone, and yet I had the fun of teaching a little every day. We made good friends at the local church. The minister and his wife were close to our age, also with young children, and we spent a lot of time together. One day in talking about the issue of submission, this was a very big issue that time, I commented that almost always Fletcher and I had been able to talk through our differences so that we had come to some kind of consensus that we both felt comfortable with. I thought this was a very good thing. But the minister looked very pointedly at me and said, it sounds like you've never been submissive. <laughs> Just as a footnote, his marriage didn't last, but ours did. <laughs> but I'm not making light of all of this. Another formative experience for me was when I was invited to lead a Bible study at the local nursing home. Several of the retired women from church had been volunteering at this nursing home, and they asked if I would come and do a Bible study with a small group of ladies. Uh, typically, there were four or five of us, and we sat at a little table over in the side of the visiting area. Um, I read from the book of John, still using my notes from Lightfoot's class from years prior. One day, an elderly man scooted his wheelchair over to our group as we were dispersing and, with great effort to speak, asked if he could join the group next week. The simple answer I was supposed to give was no, because what he was asking meant that I, a woman, was going to be teaching a man, and we all know what Paul said about that. <laughs> I went home and talked to Fletcher about it. I, th this was a dilemma for me. Could it be that such was cultural, like wearing pearls or braided hair? Or was this a core belief, like the divinity of Jesus? 
But somehow, to deny that sweet man the chance to listen to Scripture being read and discussed didn't seem consistent with what Jesus would do. And I had also read the book, What Would Jesus Do? Or was I just wanting to do what I wanted to do, even in disobedience to God? I was not sure of the answer, of the right answer, but I did allow the elderly man to join our group. Time passed. We moved back to Nashville for Fletcher to teach Lipscomb. We found a wonderful church home at Otter Creek. Otter Creek was unique for us in several ways, but one of the most important was that on many religious issues, a variety of opinions was tolerated. It was safe to disagree in class discussions. We had not experienced that prior to Otter Creek. We even observed some almost heated discussions in Sunday school, but both parties were gracious and loving to each other at the end of class. There are a few decisions that I have come to be more grateful for than the decision to be a part of this church. And interestingly, it was Fletcher who was sure that Otter Creek was the right place for us. We had narrowed it to two choices, and he voted strongly for Otter Creek. This is not a perfect church, but it's been an eternal gift to us and our family. We placed membership here the Sunday after our daughter Amy was born. In the 70s, there was much political furor about the Equal Rights Amendment. At church, especially in classes, lots was being said about the scriptural roles of husband and wife. And I'm, this is a bit humorous, but I, this, I, am as, I was as sincere as you could be about this. I became convinced that I wasn't being properly submissive. So I decided that I would be more careful not to be the leader in our family. Now remember, I grew up with my father being the clear strong leader. If you know Fletcher well, you'll know that contentment is one of his spiritual gifts. It is not one of mine. <laughs> it was me that had suggested it was time for our family to find a house instead of the one-bedroom bachelor apartment I had moved into at the time of our marriage. I've often wondered how many children would we have had before Fletcher thought we needed more space. <laughs> it was me that thought we should renovate the bathroom that had seen no improvements in 50 years. So I quietly fumed, waiting for Fletcher to notice what to me was obvious that we needed to do as a family. It was not obvious to him. A classic example is that we had moved to a larger house, and I waited for Fletcher to notice, and when I could stand it no longer, I suggested that we might want to buy some furniture for the living room, <laughs> which was absolutely barren. Not a lamp, not a chair, not a stick. And this is truth. To which Fletcher replied, somewhat perplexed, why would we do that? We don't ever spend any time in there. But this simple and clear version of submission was not only not strengthening our marriage, it was causing strife. And so we reverted to our previous pattern of discussion, discussion and trying to reach consensus. Had I misinterpreted God's plan of submission? Or was I just defiant and headstrong? I was not sure. Four years later, a son, Fletcher Douglas, we recycle names, was born. When Douglas was two, I went to work at the Otter Creek Preschool, and I see several of you from those years. Eight years, I loved it. Eight years later, I was invited to, be, to apply to be principal at Lipscomb Academy Elementary. I was very, very unsure of what God wanted me to do. 
I loved being at Otter Creek, and I had never aspired to move to a larger program. But I was intrigued about the possibilities at Lipscomb. I have never been much of a believer in fleeces, you know, Gideon putting the fleece out. But I confessed I prayed for a sign. If it was there, I missed it. But 17 years later, I retired from Lipscomb. I think very few people enjoyed their work as much as I enjoyed Otter Creek and Lipscomb. And frankly, it was because of the people that I worked with. As you might expect, there was a spectrum of theological beliefs among the faculty. I knew I was on the liberal end, and I tried hard to be respectful of all. For several years, there was only one male on the faculty, so when he was present in faculty meetings, he led all the prayers. No one seemed dismayed if I asked him to pray for specific requests, and no one was uncomfortable when I prayed when he wasn't there. In chapel, I regularly delivered the lesson for the children, but I never called it a sermon, but I never led the closing prayer. Some of the rules came to feel arbitrary, but I appreciated that what was arbitrary to me was important to others, and I suspect that my journey of observing and living the changing roles of women in public church is similar to that of many of you. When my Amy was a senior in high school, Harold Hazlip, who was president of Lipscomb, called and asked if I would be the high school graduation speaker that year. I was stunned. To my knowledge, a woman had never been invited to speak. Times were changing. It was not the best speech ever given, but it was not for lack of preparation. I spent days on it. I bought a new dress. I didn't want to embarrass myself or my daughter or women in general. <laughs> and I didn't miss the irony of the shy, quiet little girl, now grown up, being asked to speak before a crowd. Who could have imagined? And two years later, Sandra Collins gave one of the best graduation speeches ever heard. I want to share one more formative moment, and that's what it was. Hardly more than a moment. I had just attended a two-day seminar on how to deal with angry people. Yes, even administrators at Christian schools occasionally encounter upset parents. <laughs> the premise of the seminar is that people are angry not because of the offense, like you broke in line or you cut someone off in traffic or you caught their child misbehaving, but the anger is rooted in the feeling that you don't care or somehow you don't respect them. I listened to various scenarios of this theme for two full days of seminar. And immediately upon returning to school, I had a conversation with a teacher about an evening event that I expected her to attend. The room mothers were planning a grade-level outing to help parents get to know each other. Lovely idea. The teacher was very unhappy that I was asking her to spend two hours at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> I went back to my office, got out my school calendar, and began an email to the teacher listing the times that teachers were expected to be at events, etc., outside of working hours. The list was very short. I was so right, okay? And I was the boss. 
But before I could press send on my, on my email detailing how I was right and she was wrong and how I really thought that was going to help our situation, I am not sure. But I was called away from my desk. I've told you that I don't have much experience with fleeces. But I do think it was perhaps God that caused me to see the flyer for the seminar on angry people on the corner of my desk as I returned to finish my email. Would that approach of loving really work? I deleted my very defensive email and sent a new one that said, I think you've heard something from me that I did not intend to communicate. You are a wonderful teacher and I have much respect for you. Can we talk more? The teacher sought me out at her next break with tears in her eyes. We got it worked out. I never knew what she took offense at. I never knew what words didn't come out right. But she ended up going to Chuck E. Cheese and with a good attitude. If I had, as I have described my journey of faith around especially the issue of my role as a woman, there is a marked emphasis. The words I've used are, I understand, I believe, I discern. And there's not much mention of what I feel. To be transparent, the intellectual component of faith is easier for me than the emotional one. Bible study is easier for me than prayer. I want to feel more personal connection to God. I don't believe that my salvation is dependent upon that. But I do think the more I can grow an emotional bond, the more peace and comfort I will experience. And I'm working on that. So, I have learned. I didn't know all the answers 70 years ago, and I won't know them all when I die. And frankly, those answers won't matter. Only the gift of salvation will matter, and that is, thank God, not dependent on how much I know or what I do. And I believe that with all my heart. For me, discerning God's will for my life has not been an easy process. I have learned that sometimes when I'm attracted to a simple or obvious answer, I am at risk of missing a more eternal principle. Learning, growing in faith, is a lifetime process. I do not apologize for changing my mind about how God see, about how I see God's will. Frankly, I see change as evidence that I'm trying to develop a deeper understanding. Have I made all the right ch changes? Probably not, but I'm doing the best to know how to do. Growing in faith is an intensely personal experience. And I want to be very cautious about judging the motives of those who come to conclusions that are different than mine. This is true in matters of faith. And it's also true in matters of politics, in dress, are we recording? 
Maybe I shouldn't say it. Do any of you have granddaughters that wear skirts that are too short? <laughs> or food choices. Do any of you have grandchildren that spend outrageous amounts on exotic coffees? Really? <laughs> the life I expected to live was not exactly what I chose when the time came. And often we live a life that is determined not even by our choice, but by circumstances beyond our control. When I told Carol that I would describe my spiritual journey, I'm here to tell you that I think what I've described was not that at all. I have described trying to understand the ways of sharing Christian community. As we do church together, there are some choices that have to be made. Will head coverings be required when we're together? Who can lead public prayers? Will we allow instrumental music? These issues demand some consideration, but I'm not sure they constitute spiritual journey in the same way that deciding whether or not to buy living room furniture might not involve leadership or submission. I have this image upon arriving in heaven that there will be perfect understanding. I suspect that I will be unconcerned about all the issues that I have mentioned this morning. I suspect I will understand spiritual truths like I tried to control things I couldn't control. I miss tender opportunities to love and encourage more completely. I forsook joy for worry. My daughter-in-law, Megan's mother, has recently decided to end the grueling chemo treatments that she has endured off and on for years. She speaks of not trying to outrun death. She's ready to be in heaven. That's a spiritual journey. Coming to full trust, finding peace, letting go. Several years ago, Megan received a, a lovely compliment in a somewhat public way, and I was excited for her and talking to her about it, and she smiled a little sheepishly and said, I'm holding it loosely. She meant she wasn't going to, or she didn't want to invest too much emotional energy in this. She didn't want it to speak to her identity. Good for her. Megan now uses that term a little differently. She speaks of holding her mother's future loosely. Unsure if that time is weeks or months. Unsure of what that time will be like. I like that concept of holding loosely. I would like to hold my expectations of the future loosely. Not knowing how many days they'll be, but living each day well. Rejoicing in each one, knowing that God holds all in his hands. So, perhaps my real spiritual journey is learning that it's more important that I be loving than that I be right. Questions? <laughs> What do you identify and what do you not identify with? Well, I'll give you a quick answer. 
Okay. So when you talk me at the very first, and there are a lot of things you said that, that brought back memories for me, but the one that I liked was about the book, Why I'm a Member of Church of Christ. Well, in uh, Alm Creek, West Virginia, we had track racks, so we didn't have a book. There was a track that said, Why I'm a Member of Church of Christ, or something like that. And so I had this Baptist friend from high school, and uh, and we decided to talk. I decided to convert him, and and uh, and I used that track. Well, what I didn't bother to do is to go read through those scriptures that <laughs> the little track said supported whatever claim that was being made, and and I discovered, you know that they didn't, for the most part, didn't. And everything he had to say about those issues was right on the money. So I got my money cheap. So I enjoyed that. <laughs> but again, that's a good learning experience yeah. for all of us to have. I mean, um, and the reality is those scriptures do say what the track says they say to some people. Yeah. And I do think it's incumbent upon us to Respect that. I don't know. We, uh, we had a, a preacher back home, uh, Brother Honey, and he was a barber. And he, we asked him when we were in junior high school to talk about why dancing was wrong. And uh, so he put it off for a couple of weeks, and then he, on a Sunday night, he told the congregation that the reason dancing was wrong is because Herod's... Uh, the girl dance, which led to John the Baptist getting his head chopped off, which means that dancing is bad. And so, as a kid, we look, you know, we look over at the adults and thought, well, they're believing this, and it's ridiculous. But I guess, I guess, we just don't know yet. <laughs> We're not old enough to grasp the depth of that. <laughs> Gail, uh, one of the things that really strikes me is that you grew up in a home where the father was a leader, and yet you had this big desire to be independent, and you developed your independence. I grew up in a home where my mother encouraged me to be independent. She she did not dictate. She I my, had no father in the home. And so, you know, she didn't talk about submission and uh, that sort of thing. And yet I did become a very independent person and thinker. And, and so I love that God takes whatever her background is and leads us to what might be a good conclusion for our home life. There's some interesting pieces to that. Now, those of you that know Fletcher well know it's a good thing that I am independent because the last thing he wants is to take care of somebody. That is not, he is fiercely independent and he, he doesn't want anybody hovering over him and he doesn't want to hover over anybody. I don't mean that he's not loving and caring, he is, but, but that, that is who he is. But I realize for our children, in fact, I had a long talk with Douglas when he got married that what had worked well for us might not work 
well for him, that his wife might want a good bit of a different kind of response, and that that was okay. And I think, to some extent, our girls had to kind of work out that they saw their role as larger than the mother's role had been in the families that their husband had grown up in. And I think they worked it all out, but I do think those are kind of issues that have to be resolved kind of generation by generation. Well, I think one of the reasons for, for me is that not ever having lived with a man in the house, my mother made all the decisions, and I had no idea of what a husband would be like. And uh, I, I initially, <laughs> for not too long, but initially, I thought if I put his interest before mine, his best interest before mine, that he would do the same thing. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> that was not right at all. But, he, but he'd also grown up in a house where there was not a father, so he had no idea of what a husband should be. And I really think that things like that are so important that we understand that, uh, you know, a lot of things influence. Yes, lots of pieces go into making who we are. Somebody else? Well, my experience with Gail was the first time I had been here, uh, you know, at Otter Creek, and Sandy Collins, who had moved from Kentucky, asked uh, Gail and I to go with her to this women's retreat. And so um, <clears throat> I rode back with Gail, and I've never been with a better listener in my life. <laughs> she, I, I felt like that when I got back, I had done all the talking, and, uh, and I see Gail talking with uh, a lot of young mothers, and I would like to ask you, what do you think are some of the, how do you be a good listener? I mean, is it just you're just born that way? No, no. And, I, and frankly, I think that, I mean, I was trained as a school psychologist, and I think part of, part of that is specifically the training that you get. Um, but, but, Nan, you're a good listener. I mean, I've been with many of you. I know many of you to be a good listener. A good listener just cares about what that person's saying, and you're not just waiting to get your turn, that you're really, you know, you know interested in what that person is talking about. I, um, I think we underwrite caring. I mean, I really. You think what? We underwrite caring. We underwrite how much we all need it, and and how much um, that that makes such a difference in the relationship. And listening is is a form of caring. And and people care in all sorts of different ways. But yeah, I, I do. Did you have lots of mothers in your school come and talk to you? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, that's what, that's what I think principals are supposed to do, and I encourage that. Um, but, yeah, being a mom is, is hard, and especially uh, one of the things that I learned really, I learned it at Otter Creek, but I certainly learned it somewhere, that things are often not as they seem. And so the family that that's driving the big car and going on the beautiful vacations 
may well be the family that's barely making tuition payments because for a variety of reasons. Or the family that looks so perfect may be the family that all of a sudden the mother's in my office saying he's filed for divorce. So um, it is not um, prudent to, to assume that you understand or that you know what's going on for somebody else. And so if you don't listen, you, you, you might miss it. Buying time is always a good option. <laughs> yes, but it, that taught me how to conduct a parent conference also. But let me think about that, or, um, or tell me more. Or you would say, um, well, how, how are you feeling about that, or how does that affect what you do? And you got me to explore what was going on, which gave you a bigger picture but also gave you to think of an answer <laughs> or a direction to point you in, which was um, a very new experience for me because while I knew my mother loved me with all her heart, she was she had an answer for everything and she was right. <laughs> and so you helped me learn think about things, but also to be a better teacher when the children brought things to me and I had to explore with them to find out really what happened or when parents came and were distressed. And so I want you to develop a class for administrators and teach them how to listen, not just to parents, but their One of the best little sayings that I think I've ever had came from some of you that go way back at Otter Creek will remember Chris Qualls, which was who was the psychologist at Agape, but he had this line that when taught, he did a lot of teacher workshops for us, and he said, when talking to teachers, teachers don't care what you say until they know that you care about their child. And so, in, for instance, in teaching, the first parent conference is not the time unless it's just devastating, to bring up something really, really tough. You need to develop some rapport and some trust before you bring up tough issues, because they do. They've got to know that you really care, so. Gail, you haven't mentioned your service as a member of the board of the Tennessee Children's Home, which I am too, and you've been there for several years, and well, and it has to do with my journey as a woman because I was the first yeah. woman on the children, Tennessee Children's Home Board. Um, there had even been some criticism that there had been only these... I had something to do with us changing that. I am not surprised. <laughs> one man who was a very good friend and a longtime board member told me, he said, when I brought this up about getting women on the board, he said, I think you're right, but I hope you wait till I broke that off. <laughs> <laughs> well, and maybe you did, because um, I was 
I was treated with nothing but kindness and respect. Um, and I, I had, I don't have any, um, I don't have any memories of being treated badly because I was a woman. And, and the same happened to me at Lovescombe when I went there. For years, I was the only female on the administrative team. And... Um, we have several now. But oh, yes, 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 yes. And I did not... I did not... And, and I had those same feelings coming to Otter Creek. I mean... Um, very early, my first board experience was Otter Creek, and it was on the kindergarten board. And um, there were several women on the board and several men on the board, and gender was not an issue. So Otter Creek has a long history, I think, of valuing what the women bring to the table. Paulette, I'm sorry, I think I've taken too long. Gail, thank you so much.